This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Okay, uh, so here we are. We're doing these uh, this episode and a couple others uh, at NASTEC PPI conference in Oklahoma City. So Fred, tell us a little bit, uh, remind our listeners what NASTEC is. And Absolutely. It's, it's actually a real treat. Jethro to introduce you to this community that's been, been fun, been so important to the work that, that I've done over the last five or six years. So we are at a conference called the Professional Practices Institute, which is run by NASDAQ, which is the National Association of State Directors of Teacher Education and Certification. They are responsible for providing training to the licensing people and the education training people around the country. PPI is specifically focused on investigators and state attorneys. You'll hear from many of them over the next few episodes. So this and whatever other ones we put this pre-recording in front of are going to set the stage for for what we're talking about. We talked to some really great people. It was awesome, but we barely scratched the surface. So we only did a couple live in-person interviews, but we're going to have some more of those people on the Cybertraps podcast coming up. And so as you hear background noise and things like that through these episodes, that's because we're recording in a hallway and <laughs> that's kind of how it right, goes. Right next to the buffet table. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, hope you guys enjoy it. All right. So Catherine, would you start by telling us what you do, who you are? Sure. Uh, my name is Catherine Slegel, and I am currently the director of the Office of Professional Practices with the state of Washington um, Office of Superintendent for Public Instruction. And how long have you been in that role and, and what was your background before that? So um, I started um, with um, OSPI in 2010, so about 11 and a half years. Prior to that, I worked in higher education for seven and a half years. I ran an education program in a prison. <laughs> and prior to that, I worked in the field of corrections as um, a community corrections officer, a training manager, and a risk management specialist. Yeah. My last principal position, I was a principal of a prison school. Fantastic. Yeah. It was, you know, I, uh, the, when we had the first GED graduation from there, I'd already been in corrections a little over 
10 years when I came to work in higher education. And I, it was it almost made me cry because I was like, this is one of the first positive things that I've seen come out of yeah. corrections. So. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You and I have worked together for a fair amount of time. You know and I had no idea that that was your background. Yep. So what tell us a little bit then about the transition from corrections to Office of Professional Practices and so forth. Right. So um, after I received my master's degree, that's what I, when I went into higher education. And I had been commuting 128 miles a day for seven and a half years. You guys live in these big states. That's right. <laughs> and had seen a job opening um, with the Office of Superintendent for Public Instruction um, in Olympia, where I live. And my husband said, boy, that job is written for you. And I went and interviewed, and it was really interesting because most of the teaching assistants that we had in the prison were teachers who had been revoked because they'd had sexual relationships with students. Ah. And so wow. it was right up my alley, and I asked, you know, I got hired, obviously, for the position, and I asked my new boss, am I able to look these people up that we used to work for us in the prisons? And he said, well, that's your job now. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, I, I really, uh, I said, I've been, my career has been about 30 years already. Um, and it's been really dealing with the most negative of things that happen in the most negative populations. But what we do now is we protect kids. And I remember that every single day is the reason we're doing what we're doing is to protect the kids, not to ruin somebody's career but to hold them accountable for their behavior. Hopefully they learn from their mistakes and they can move on and have successful or continue a successful career in the, in the teaching arena. So one of my questions is, as you're doing this work, you see a lot of negative things, obviously. How do you, how do you deal with that and, and not give up hope? Like, how do you not let that affect you and think these, there's just too many awful people in our school systems or in our world for them. <laughs> and, yeah. That's what I should have said as world, but you know, when I, I mean, if I look at it from the teaching profession, um, in the state of Washington, we probably have, we probably have over 130,000, um, certificated educators, not that they're all working, but, and when I think about it, you know, we have the most we've had is upwards of like 125 open investigations at one time. And so it's a very, it's a very small percentage of educators that we see. And so I don't give up because I realize there's, you know, it's the very, it's very few. I mean, most people go into the education world because they, they want to help people grow and they want to mentor and they care. And then there's those that just, they go down, as we always say, that slippery slope and they make those mistakes and some of them can't come back from them and others do and they continue to be successful. And, I, you know, a lot of times I try to follow people, you know, the low-level ones that we give a reprimand to for a short-term suspension. We follow them to see if they get reemployed. And, you know, and I, I like to see it since I've been in that job almost 12 years. I, I get to see that, you know, they learned from what they did. Mm -hmm. So so I'm glad that you brought up those statistics, that there are 130,000 teachers and 125 open investigations at any one time. That's actually really um, heartening to hear that it's not, we, we see the news stories, we see the headlines, and so you think that it's bigger than it actually is. And thankfully, it's not. And that uh, seems like a reasonable number compared to what Fred and I have talked about numerous times, that there's 
you know, like less than 1%, right? Yep. So that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, it's even smaller than that. I am. I, I went into writing because I don't do math, but at some point, <laughs> I, at some point I will pull up the calculator and we'll actually get a number there. But, you know, it's interesting, Catherine, I'd, I'd be curious to hear um, you talk a little bit about the fact that you're really dealing with the most serious cases. What is your office or what is the state doing for the less serious offenses? You know, really helping educators to manage this social media world that they're in. So, you know, um, we just this past year, we're able to update our code of professional conduct. Um, a few years ago, there was some uh, research done uh, by a group in Texas, and they pointed out that uh, Washington State didn't actually call out social or um, digital media in our code of conduct. We just hmm. we had a catch all. Right. Um, and so we updated it. And now it's, it, you know, it is a specific um code of conduct violation. And we were also at that time able to add a lower level of discipline than a reprimand, which we never had. So a reprimand doesn't affect somebody's teaching certificate, but it, it's a black mark on their record forever. And now we can do a letter of concern. Uh, that, yeah. So then they don't have to report it as formal discipline. And so for lower, lower level cases around social media, because really what we look at is, you know, the frequency, the, the times of days that it occurred. Sometimes we don't get the messages, but when we do have them, what are they about? Is there any educational value to them? And in the state of Washington, um, the district is required to do their own investigation before they send a complaint to our office. Mm. And then we have to do our own independent investigation after that. And so, you know, really um, finding out the culture of the school is a big thing. You know, finding out the trainings that the educators have had and then you know, talking to others that are in the school, because we want to make sure that um, with the last podcast that I sat through, I you know, heard the, the folks talking about the ethics. And a big thing for me is communication. Educators have to communicate with each other, because if I'm a teacher in a classroom and I see the teacher across the hall doing some behaviors, are um, more engaging in behavior that doesn't look right, whether whether it is or it isn't. There's questions there. It's it is my responsibility to go over and talk to them about that because I don't want them to get caught up in that trap mm-hmm. and end up in our office or in my book. Well, <laughs> use several from Washington State. Uh, if you're so, sorry about that, but yeah, they were there. <laughs> but let me ask you this, Catherine. So I, I'm really intrigued by this idea of a letter of concern, because that seems to me to offer you a, a lot of flexibility in terms of how you approach these things. For the folks who are listening, what kinds of behaviors might fall into that range um, as opposed to a formal reprimand or even a termination? Right. Um, well, unfortunately, the um, letter of reprimand just went into place um just this past April. oh the letter of concern no, sorry sorry the letter yeah. of concern excuse me yeah. uh, it just went into place in uh april 25th i believe of 2021 and we haven't issued a single case with that because we've had a lot higher level cases so you know it's going to be it's going to be for low level cases it could be just falsification on applications um, and then it could be actual you know digital social media communications depending on what it is you know and how long it goes on um, but we really we don't have a we don't have a matrix to say these are the cases that will be letters of concern and you know they would have to fall at least in the realm of a reprimand 
but we believe that the educator and the community are better off with just a letter of concern and that, that, you know, not somebody who's been through our office before that we've disciplined, we would not be doing a letter of concern. (laughs) Right. Right. A frequent flyer. (laughs) A repeat offender. I will be curious, um, you know, as someone who studies this area, I'll be really curious to see how that plays out Yep. because I don't think I'm aware of any other state that, that has that particular tier in terms of addressing these issues. Well, I don't think at the state level. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that's curious to me. If it's a big enough deal to rise to the level of the state, it seems like there needs to be something more done than a letter of concern. Otherwise, I would think you could handle that internally within the district. Well, that's an interesting perspective. So, well, yeah. But what we look at is, I mean, the districts deal with employment. We deal with the certificate that somebody holds to do their job. and so. There is a code of conduct, and when they violate it, there is a mandate that a superintendent has to send the complaint to our office. But once we look into the whole thing, because, again, we have to do our own independent investigation, and we may do a totally different investigation than what the school district did, you know, if we can make the determination that uh, the educator and the students and the community are best served by the letter of concern, um, that's what we'll issue. Because, again... We're dealing with the certificate, not their employment. Do you ever run into a situation, and obviously without naming names, but do you ever run into a situation where you find that the superintendents are reluctant to report to you because of the impact on the school's reputation or there's a friendship? I know that they're mandated to, but I'm wondering about the human element that may pop up. So um, I don't know that they're reluctant to. I think sometimes they don't even realize that they, I mean, they know that they're required to, but, you know, if I get a call from the media about something and we haven't received a complaint, uh, often the answer is, you know, the school district's probably still completing their investigation before they send a complaint to us. But then I pick up the phone and I call the superintendent and find out what's going on. Or, you know, daily we receive calls from concerned parents. We don't take complaints from parents. We, we receive them from superintendents. But when I do receive a call from a parent, I turn around and I contact the superintendent so that I hear both sides of the story. And then they know that if they don't send the complaint to our office, if they believe it rises to a level of a code of of conduct violation, that their certificate is also in jeopardy because it's a violation of the code of conduct to fail to report to our office. Yeah, this is is really interesting because I'm still thinking about this, the situations that I've experienced where I wouldn't send it on to the state because I wouldn't think that it would rise to that level. And I can see how someone out of fear of their own license would report something just to be on the safe side. And personally, I haven't experienced that myself. I have never felt like I was in a situation where I, I was trying to, to cover something up or anything like that, but I'm sure that that does happen, that there are efforts to make sure other people don't find out about certain things. Um, so Kathy, what is it that teachers need to help them not make these kinds of choices anymore? So, yeah, I, I mean, I think that in their teacher ed programs, um, there needs to be, uh, specific training around ethics and kind of, uh, the red flags, um, let them know, you know, what can happen. It's difficult when you have somebody who is 22 years old, who just 
graduated from college going in to teach 17 and 18 year olds in high school because they relate to those kids. Um, and may have been dating them like two years. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, they, they just, they really need to realize that they cannot be the student's friend. That's, that's not their role. Their role is the educator or the role is their counselor. The role is their school psychologist. Um, and they can be friendly to a certain point, but not be their friend. And then they also need to know that it's not about protecting each other. It's about working together as a community in the school district. And as I'd said earlier, if you see somebody across the hall doing something that doesn't look right, talking with them, making sure that they understand what your concerns are so that they don't go down that slippery slope and end up either in trouble at the school, coming to the state office and being disciplined for something that maybe those weren't their intentions. Um, their intentions were to help that student, but it didn't turn out that way. And so I think a big thing is ethics training, knowing what the triggers are and communication with each other in the classroom rather than thinking they need to protect each other. You know, I think that's really well said, Catherine. It, it, the communication piece it, it seems to me is so vital across the board because we need parents communicating with their children about what behaviors they should be demonstrating. But there's also built into that sense of communication, the idea of community. And it seems to me that educators need to recognize that they're part of a school community and then a broader community in which they teach. And there's a responsibility there. Agreed. Exactly. Excellent. Oh. Well, thanks, Kathy, so much for being part of the Cybertraps podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've enjoyed it. Excellent. All right. Thank you. I would like to wrap up then this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, education, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to our growing collection of international experts, who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast and all your favorite apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and reach out to us if you have a topic or guest suggestion. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this episode. And if that's the case, please leave us a five-star rating in your podcast player. And we thank you for being here and we'll see you on our next live show on Monday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards, 
You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.